Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Mike to New Haven podcast with sports personality Mike Cologne. Here's your host, Mike Cologne. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 38 of the Mike to New Haven podcast. Uh, a good time for the podcast. We're coming off a big week. Last week, I believe, I interviewed uh, two very prominent people, one on the news side, one on the law enforcement side. I spoke with New York City Police Commissioner James O'Neill, spoke with Bill Ritter as well of ABC New York. Both great interviews. You can check it out on iTunes and Spreaker or, you know, just a podcast app on your Apple devices. Of course, I am your host, Mike Colon. You can find me on Twitter at Mike in New Haven. So in episode 38, uh, it's a big honor for me because my next guest is a true trailblazer for women in journalism. Formerly of ESPN and NBC, she's covered several of the world's most prominent sports events, such as Super Bowls, World Series, so on and so forth, and was named one of the 10 greatest female sportscasters of all time by TV Guide in 2011. Current chief correspondent for NFL Network, as well as a correspondent for Real Sports on Now on HBO, Miss Andrea Kramer joins me now on Mike the New Haven. Andrea, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. Let's see, I'm up with some really, some, some truly newsworthy people, and we just have to talk about sports. And no, no, you're newsworthy yourself. I mean, you're one of the legends of the business, so it's definitely nice to talk with you as well here in episode 38 of the podcast. So the first question is an easy one. I ask pretty much all of my guests this, and that is, uh, you were born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. All your education came in Philly as well. So tell me, what was your childhood like growing up in the city of brotherly love? Wow, that's a that's a wide-ranging question. Uh, I grew up in the city because my dad uh, my dad was a judge and in Philadelphia, and we had to, to live within the city limits. So I was really a city girl. Uh, I went to Quaker school for 13 years. I'm a lifer. Uh, I wouldn't change anything about that. It was an amazing experience. Uh, at my Hall of Fame induction, my oldest friend since I was two. My best friend since I was five were there, and uh, uh, nurturing relationships has always been a huge thing for me, and uh, and it was it was an amazing upbringing. Uh, of course, our upbringing is what we remember, and so for me, my memories are all pretty darn good. Uh, and look, it's a, it's a different time than when kids are growing up than when how my son has grown up because. We actually had to occupy ourselves with things other than small devices we could hold in our hands. <laughs> and so, you know, oops, sorry, my mail is being delivered. Now you get a sense as to my life here. Oh, okay. So, um, uh, that would be the dog. Cue the dog. Cue the sound effect of the dog. Anyway, <laughs> um, you know, I, sports was always a huge part of my life, and I played three sports. 
myself and I danced ballet and and I I uh, I had a, a pretty full uh, full life growing up and uh, it certainly uh, the ability to juggle compartmentalize things of that nature I think completely informed my life today because I'm involved with so many things at, at such a high level. Definitely, and that, that's I'm glad you were able to have an, uh, a good upbringing. A lot of people don't have that, and you know something that can be taken for granted. So it sounds like you had a good childhood, and that's very very good to hear. So people in your line of work uh, often know what they want to do from an early age. So was that the case with you? And if so, if it was, who would you say were some of your earliest media influences? Well, how old are you? I'm 18. You're 18. Yes. So, when I was your age, I didn't exist. Okay. <laughs> so, again, think about that for a second. Your audience may need to process that for a moment. But the reality is, is that I just, there, there wasn't anybody out there doing this. So, I may have loved sports since I was a very, very small child and went to the games and my parents bought me books and, and were really supportive of this, whereas they could have tried to steer me in a different direction. But it wasn't as though I could sit there and say, wow, I want to, I want to do what that woman Andrea Kramer does. I want to do what that woman Pam Oliver does. I want to do what... No, it, it wasn't because there wasn't anybody out there. And, and I understand that you know we always want to encourage our kids to dream big, but this was just not a dream that was ever on the radar. It, it just wasn't. Uh, you know, throughout my, my upbringing, uh, it was just always assumed that I would go to law school, which I did for a year after I graduated 10. But it was, it, this was just never what I thought I was going to do. When uh, I started to get a little bit older and started to even work in the business a little bit, I just remember one of the seminal moments being when Gail Gardner, who was a very prominent and, and terrific anchor and reporter at ESPN, uh, moved to NBC. And she was making her debut on, on January 1st. And I just remember standing in front of the television. I just remember exactly where I was, watching her going, oh, my God, be great. Oh, please be great. Please be great. Please be great. Because the idea that a woman could be out there doing this, just the thought of what it could open up for other people. And she was great. And she didn't make the mistakes. And, and that, to me, was just sort of the seminal moment that I remember which was really important to thinking that this could possibly be a career that I could make for myself. You know, as, they, as the old saying goes, there's a first time for everything. And so, you know, so, somebody had to be the one to break the barrier. And, and Gail Gardner was definitely one of the uh, OGs, if you will. So that, that's a throwback there and a very welcome one here on this podcast. So after graduating from the University of Pennsylvania in 1981, you mentioned that you were a lifer in Philadelphia. Your career would begin shortly after that when you became the sports editor, sports editor, if I could speak, that'd be great, of the Mainline Chronicle. So that was the state's largest weekly newspaper at the time. You're a young woman with a fairly prominent position at a prominent paper. And the perception of women in media was, as you kind of alluded to in your last answer, a bit different back then. Did you ever have any issues in terms of bias, or was it totally the opposite? Oh, my God, yes, of course. But what, what, what ended up happening was I, um, I had moved back to Philadelphia. I'd been in law school in New York. I moved back, and, um, and I started just doing – I was very, very involved with a ballet company in, in Philadelphia at the time. 
I was their company manager and I was dancing and performing and teaching and writing NEA National, Endow- National Endowment for the Arts grant. But I was also doing some freelance writing on the side. And I started to do some freelance writing for the Mainline Chronicle. And I was, of course, doing dance reviews and things like that. But they knew that I liked sports. So every now and then, they'd kind of throw me a little bone. And I actually have a picture in my office of the very first interview I did where I looked scared. Am I allowed to say the word S-H-I-T? Yes, you are. Then I can say it. I was scared shitless. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was amazing. I, I, it, was, it was so nerve-wracking. It was with Dick Vermeil who had just left the Eagles after, you know, quote, quote, unquote, burning out. I mean, he put that word in the lexicon of American sports. And um, it was my first interview, so I would periodically be able to do these sports stories. Well, one day, the sports editor of the Mainline Chronicle, excuse me, the managing editor of the Mainline Chronicle came to me and said, the sports editor just got fired slash quit, and are you interested in the job? But here's the deal, he was very realistic. It's a 24-7 job. You, you can't dance. You can't rehearse. You can't do any of this other stuff that you've been doing. You, this is just a full-time, full-life-encompassing job. And I had always thought, uh, you know, there's kind of a snob in me that says Ivy League graduates don't become ballet dancers. And as much as I love ballet, <laughs> cut it, just, just stuffed it cold turkey. I had hair down on my waist, cut my hair off, which was sort of a seminar, you know, another big moment. Uh, and I started to, uh, I, I was the sports editor of the paper, and it was a great first job. We'd have to go down to Oxford, Pennsylvania, and physically lay out the paper. Use a little exacto knife, cut out the stories, piece them together. I was writing about six stories a week. Uh, I was editing. It was just an amazing first job. I met so many people. I worked my butt off. And, um, and that was really the first step that I took that, that led me to where I am today. I mean, that is an interesting journey, to say the least. And, I mean, it's interesting to hear that because we live in an era where, you know, you get your content through, as you mentioned at the beginning, with the small devices in our hands. And so there's no affinity, I find, for the fine print anymore. So to hear, you know, it it, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but it kind of is. So to hear you kind of talk about literally making the paper by hand uh, was definitely fascinating there. So after the... Even when I I got to NFL Films as a producer... We would sit there, again, I mean, I, 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 it's one thing that I encourage my students, I, I encourage a lot of young people to do, which is to do as many things as you can, to learn as many things as you can. So, whereas I, I indicated what I learned in print at the paper, when I got to NFL Films as their first ever, at that time we were producers slash directors slash editors slash writers, we had our own moviolas. You probably don't even know what that is. It's, it's literally what they were using in Hollywood to cut film. I mean, we mm. literally would splice films, splice it together, we'd, we'd, we'd put together, we'd, we'd edit, we would write, we would score the music, we would do all the research. It was like being your own little production company. So the, 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 the early jobs I had in my career taught me so much about so many different things. So I was never a one-trick pony, and for someone like me who... It's just kind of the way that I'm, I'm built is I always want to be learning. I always want new challenges. These were just two ideal jobs for me to have early in my career. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's a trial by fire, but you definitely succeeded at it. You definitely passed the test, to say the least. And so after the Mainline Chronicle, you, as you mentioned, you left for NFL Films. 
and you started working there in 1984, and your first assignment was working as a producer on Inside the NFL. So you're joining the show during the height of the Len Dawson and Nick Buonaconti. I hope I'm saying his name right. Yeah, Nick Buonaconti. Yeah. Nick yeah. Buonaconti era. Exactly. So uh, glad I didn't butcher his last name there. So that was when the show was, again, it's at its most popular. So what was your experiences like working with those two? Okay. I was one of the segment producers. So, um, and then the the voice of NFL Films, who by that time, some of your listeners may have heard of, of the iconic John Descenda. He had died right before I got there. So we had a man named Jeff Kay. He was the voice of NFL Films. So, you know, I would sit in there with him and I would, um, I would, uh, I would have him voice my, voice my stories and everything for my segments for Inside the NFL. But, when I got to when I got to NFL Films, uh, I remember I I got the job and I went in there uh, before I officially started to meet with the human resources people and, and learn a little bit more about what life was going to be like there. And I I show up and I'm with my boss and I'm wearing a suit and we're just sitting in his office and he says, well, first of all, when you when you come in on Monday, first of all, dress down. Everybody dresses pretty casual. Okay. He goes, and secondly, I just need to let you know, there are some men on Editor's Row who think it's been long overdue that we hire a woman, but there are some that think that you don't belong. So I'm sort of like, well, gee, thanks for that, Ralph, and, you know, <laughs> piece of advice here. But I, I, I just basically said to him, I said, listen, I'm, I'm not here to win a popularity contest. I, I'm here to learn. I got a lot to learn. I'm here to be the best producer I could be, and that's got to be the approach I'm going to take. But, Mike, it did not take me long to find out who didn't think I belonged. Mm. So, again, I keep using this phrase, seminal moments, seminal moments. But when you reflect back, there are always those touch points, if you will. So, very briefly, so I'm, I'm one of the producers for these for the four segments for Inside the NFL. And each week, before the show would go out, all of the producers, we'd assemble in, the, in this viewing room. We'd all kind of plop down on couches and we watch all the video, which was uh, an opportunity for us to see all the shots and to sort of make sure that everything looked good. So I'm, I'm sitting there watching this one segment, and, all the, and I hear something, and I say to myself, that's wrong. That's a mistake. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you, you're sure of something, but then all of a sudden you start overthinking it, and you start questioning yourself. That's every day. <laughs> well, okay, well, there you go. So I'm sitting there. And what I realized is that the mistake in the segment was a segment that was produced by the guy who really doesn't think I belong. Mm. So now I'm in this position. Am I the team player, which I've always been, very important to me, and I you know, met, quietly mention the mistake, or do I kind of succumb to my own personal insecurities and don't take that chance? So I was like, well, look, if, one, if there's a mistake made, it reflects poorly on all of us. So I very quietly mentioned it to someone, and I was right. And so after that, the guy and I never went to lunch together, but he had a different appreciation and respect for me because, number one, I bailed out his butt. Mm-hmm. But number two, I, I, I proved to be a team player, and, and I, I knew my stuff. So that was, again, something that that, that lesson taught me you can talk all you want about your this, your that. Just show me. Right. Let your actions speak for themselves. It's such a cliche, but it's so true. 
But when you, when a person is in a position where they really have to prove themselves, you can only prove yourself by your actions, not by whatever you say. Yeah, it's definitely true. I mean, I've been hearing that, you know, because we, we do it, and you're a mom, so you know this. Sometimes as children, we kind of hear these cliches, and we're like, okay, we get it. But, you know, it's true. It, it does uh, kind of hit close to home when you tell stories like that. You're not the first person to tell a story like that on this podcast, but it doesn't get any less fascinating every single time I hear that. So I appreciate you sharing that. So speaking of editing pieces, there was one that you did in 1986 that you received your first Emmy Award for, which was called Autumn Ritual. So you had only... Emmy, nom- Emmy, no- Emmy nom- nomination. That's a very sore point because that year we actually lost to the 25th anniversary of the wide world of sports. Mm. And I'm not somebody who wants awards or wants, you know, and I, it can, there's all kinds of different stuff that can get involved in that process. But I wanted that because mm-hmm. that, was, that was still to this day probably the project of which I, I, I may be most proud so Autumn Ritual, I, I gather that most people can read into what it's about, um, obviously football, but what exactly did the piece center on? It may seem like a silly question, but for those who may not know. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It, it, it's not something that anybody would probably ever think about. It was, um, Autumn Ritual was germinated in the fertile... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Creative mind of the, the man I consider my first mentor in the business, the late Steve Sable, the president of NFL Films. Mm-hmm. And Steve had this vision for Autumn Ritual being a look at football through the lens of non-football people. Mm. So it was looked at, we had, uh, (laughs) excuse me, the political commentator George Will. We had from... Uh, Watergate fame, G. Gordon Liddy. We had a linguist. We had Philip Glass, the composer. We had Max Weinberg, the drummer for Bruce Springsteen. Hmm. We had um, Arthur Mitchell, the founder uh, and director of the Dance Theater of Harlem. We had a uh, a uh, psychiatrist. We had a philosopher named George Thomas Ainsworth Land. We had a psychiatrist uh, named Dr. Menninger, uh, you name it, the most avant-garde and sort of seemingly bizarre people were in it, talking about football through their lens. And it was absolutely phenomenal. And I was chosen to work on it with, at that time, I think, the most talented creative producer of NFL Films, a man named Phil Tuckett. And... Um, and 
I was most definitely junior to him, but oh my God, it was amazing in every way. And uh, it's the longest I've probably ever worked on a film. And, uh, and it, it, it really turned into a cult film. It really did. Uh, I have a buddy that I gave the film to, and he would watch it at the beginning of every football season just to get really jacked up for the season ahead, the grind that it can be. And they did a, they did a sequel to it later, but it wasn't, I'm sorry, <laughs> there's nothing like the original. Yeah, so that's true. I was really, really, really proud of that. And, uh, and I was really honored that I was assigned to it because that was something that was very, very important to Steve Sable. Is it? And Steve Sable was, of course, a, a legend, and he and he is sorely missed. But you know, when you talk about Autumn Ritual, is it available anywhere? Can we watch it on YouTube or something like that? Oh my God, I have no idea. Hmm. I guess that's something that that we can find out from NFL Films and and all that sort of stuff. Hmm. I I have no idea. Uh, but like I said, they they did a sequel to it, but it wasn't the same thing as the as the original. I mean, it was it was it was just unbelievable. And it's funny because. Anybody and everybody would make their way to Mount Laurel for interviews, players, coaches, Hall of Famers, you name it. Mm -hmm. There was never such a buzz as when G. Gordon Liddy came to the building <laughs> because he was so sort of notorious and, and, and people wanted to, they wanted to see him. They wanted to, to, to hear him and they wanted to you know, meet him. It was, uh, it was very funny. It was, uh, I'll never forget that, what a, what a buzz he caused when he, when he came into our offices. For his yeah. interview. I can only imagine. I mean, Watergate, people forget just how big a scandal that was. So accelerating to 1989, you became the first uh, female correspondent ever for ESPN. So you're initially their Chicago correspondent until 1994, and you're in Chicago during the first three-peat for Michael Jordan and his Bulls in the early 90s. What were some of the more notable interactions that you had, if any, uh, with the Bulls during that particular time? Oh, my God. Well, but first of all, you're, you're kind of missing one piece, which is pretty important, which is I'm sorry. Steve Sable put me on camera. Oh, I'm very producer. sorry. I was a pretty good producer, if I may say so myself. And in 1987, Steve came to me and said, we want to do something different with our national show. This is the NFL. Would you like to go? You know, we'd like to put you on camera. So this had never occurred to me. Again, no role models, nothing. To that. And I didn't, I, I was sort of like, I guess, I mean, what do I have to do? Because my focus is on preparation, getting the crews, getting out there, doing the interviews, cutting up. So I kind of made a deal with them, and I said, intuitively, I said, I'll produce, let me produce my own stories. Because I knew I was a pretty good producer, and I knew I had no idea about how to be on the air. And I did that uniformly for the two-year period, except when I had to have a, 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 a story that had multiple cameras, and then you, you just can't produce yourself. So... It was later when Steve said that when they put me on camera, they kind of knew that that was it, that they were going to lose me. And the first the first year was really brutal. It was really, really hard. Didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know what I should look like. All of a sudden, I had to worry about that stuff, and I wasn't prepared to do so. And the second year, it all just came so much easier in, in some ways, and so I could, I could uh, take the attention off of that and... and put it back where I wanted it, which was on the product. And then, as it turns out, I ended up getting three job offers, one of which was ESPN to open the Chicago Bureau. And the first uh, uh, the first live, live thing I did was I was with Deion Sanders in 1989, the day he got drafted. Hmm. And uh, I guess I famously said to him, oh my goodness, it looks like you're wearing your signing bonus. Because he was wearing this gigantic piece of jewelry. <laughs> 
And then the first event that I did was game five of Knicks and Bulls. And I'm sitting on the floor with my producer at the old Chicago Stadium. The lights dim. You know, now these pregame histrionics and and pyrotonics are all the same. But back then it was pretty different. And my producer and I looked at each other and we're like, wow, this is kind of cool. Oh, my God. And that started, uh, you know, me uh, cultivating a pretty close relationship with the Bulls. I did all six of Jordan's championships. I had a, um, a, you know, that's probably the biggest story I ever broke, which was when Jordan was coming back the first time. Uh, one of the biggest interviews I ever did was the first interview with Jordan when he came back from uh, uh, playing baseball. And I'll never forget, a columnist in the, in the San Francisco Chronicle had written, uh, you know, the first interview with Michael Jordan, uh, everybody was going for it. Ed Bradley, Barbara Walters, Diane Sawyer, uh, Dan Rather, you know, going on and on and on. But who got it? ESPN's Andrea Kramer. You know, why? She's cultivated this relationship with him. And, you know, I was always fair. And I, and, and I look, I covered his gambling issues mm-hmm. at trips to Atlantic City. I covered him in, there was a very famous, uh, an associate that he, that he and his father were unwittingly associated with named Slim Buller. There was a, a criminal trial down you know, uh, down in Carolina, I did everything and, and, uh, I was always fair to him. And so that was one of the biggest interviews I ever got. Um, uh, had a long scheduled interview that, that Phil Jackson still did the night, the day after the Scotty Pippen refusing to go in the game. Wow. So I, I cultivated those relationships and they were very important to me, uh, as important to me as it was, uh, in, in football in, in Chicago. I mean, again, that's another controversy with Michael Jordan's gambling debts uh, or whatever it is that was going on that a lot of people forget about. I mean, that controversy at one point was so big, they had a Law & Order episode made about it. That episode's called Wager huh. from season four. I'm a Law & Order junkie, so I know that. But, I mean, that that huh. th- those bulls were, for as talented as they were, and, I mean, you would know better than I would because I wasn't even born yet, but for as talented as they were, they seemed every bit as toxic. Am I right? Off the court, you know, the, the relationships with management, Phil always clashing with them, MJ clashing with them. Am I right or am I wrong about that? Well, I mean, you had Phil Jackson clashing with the late Jerry Krause. Right. Um, and, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's in some ways akin to what's going on, you know, what the talk is in New England right now, which is, you know, when, you, when you're together a long time, it's kind of like a marriage even. There's going to be ups and downs and things of that nature. But when you win six championships, somebody's doing something right. Look, Michael Jordan, admittedly, is probably the most brutal player you'd ever come across in practice. That seems right. And part of it was with Jordan was, dude, if you can't handle me in practice, how the heck are you going to handle Joe Dumars or Dennis Rodman or Mark Aguirre or Bill Lambeer? Uh, you know, Charles, whoever it is, when we get into a game. And Jordan was, you know, if Jordan could make you cry at the end of practice, then he'd be doing his job. So, you know, there's, there, I think that Phil Jackson, uh, despite the, the 11 championships, is still underrated because there's a feeling of, oh my God, anybody can win with Michael Jordan. Um, I'm sorry. I love Doug Collins, but he never did. Right. So, Del you know, Harris never did with Kobe and Shaq. It's not easy to 
it's not easy to juggle these people, personalities, and uh, and spread the ball around. When it was at that time, remember Jordan and the Jordanaires, mm-hmm. that's what they were called. Definitely, and uh, as I mentioned, Del Harris had Kobe and Shaq, and Del Harris had great seasons but couldn't get it done. Right. So I mean, right, exactly. definitely. So five years passed by from night. And again, I'm sorry for missing when you were first put on camera. That's that's my bad there. Um, but five years passed by from 1989, and now it's 1994. And this is the year of mayhem with O.J. Simpson. And his trial occurs that year after the murders of uh, Nicole and Ron Goldman, her friend. So I, again, I don't know for certain if you were uh, covering that extensively. Maybe you were. Maybe you weren't. You can definitely tell me. But nonetheless, besides that, what was it like just being in Los Angeles as a reporter during that time? Well, uh, I was covering uh, the Knicks-Rockets series. Mm -hmm. I was based in Chicago. I was just about to move to Los Angeles uh, where I always wanted to live. My contract was up. I had leveraged. Uh, I I allowed them to let me move there. It's the first time any correspondent had been able to move wherever he or she wanted to live. Uh, my then boyfriend, who is now my husband, uh, was out there right, finishing his PhD, and I wanted to live out there. And uh, so we had been living in Chicago. So literally, the movers come to my house in, in my apartment in Chicago. My husband heads west. I head east to cover Nick's rockets. And I, um, I uh, uh, get a call. And they said, uh, we're pulling you off of Nick's Rockets. We're sending you out to L.A. O.J. Simpson, something's going on with O.J. Simpson. We need you to cover this. And we figured you're going to be out there anyway. So I fly to L.A. I have no idea where I live. I don't even know how to get there. I get to my house, which has nothing in it, because the movers aren't due there for another week because <laughs> we're not supposed to be there. Yeah. And... I remember walking outside my apartment. Well, I, I, I turn on the radio and I hear, oh, the white Bronco is on the 405. And I'm just like, oh my God. I, I didn't even know what I was supposed to be doing. They said, just take the day, get your bearings, and we'll start work tomorrow. Uh, at that point, I walk outside my apartment and it was like apocalypse now with the, with the uh, helicopters. It was just this crazy, crazy scene. And, uh, uh, you know, that was my introduction to OJ. And uh, mercifully, I didn't have to do the day-to-day stuff. I was able to do the bigger stories. And uh, that's what I did there back in 1994. As I told my last guest, uh, Mr. Ritter, uh, between that case and a couple other things that uh, went on during the 90s in L.A., that was just a very bad decade for the LAPD. Uh, not their not their brightest uh, hour, or you know, as as I told Mr. Ritter, and that that case being head and shoulders above the rest. So you were at ESPN for nearly 20 years, 17 years, if I'm not mistaken, 1989 until 2006. And we'll talk about your departure in depth in a moment. But you had the opportunity to contribute to a lot of things and moderate a lot of programs on the network, like Sports Center, Outside the Lines, and Monday Night Countdown. Uh, but when I was doing my research on you, I noticed that one common trend um, in many of the stories that I read. And that you covered were, you know, you did a lot of stories on topics such as domestic violence, assault, and drug abuse. So these topics are compelling and stories that definitely need to be told, don't get me wrong. But they're still very heavy topics to have to cover. So what was it about those topics that you would say allowed you to continuously and extensively cover them despite the fact that they're so heartbreaking? Well, they're the most important things. 
the, the games are great, and the games are, are the lifeblood of sports and stuff like that, but uh, the way sports intersects with society is, is one of the things that I've always sort of considered to be a, a specialty that I have, and something that's of, of great interest. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, my, my, we've talked quite a bit about Steve Sable, and, you know, he used to say, you know, tell me a story, it'll resonate, you know, it'll last with me forever. And those are really important stories to tell. There's, uh, there's the things that, that illuminate situations. There's the heartbreaking stories. I mean, one of the toughest stories I ever did in my whole life was, um, and the only time that this person has ever, to this day, still ever talked, was with um, uh, Buccaneers wide receiver Joe Jaravicious, who, you know, within just over a month after winning the Super Bowl in Tampa, his, his infant died. And sitting down with them, especially when I had, at that point, like a one-year-old, was just unbelievable. But, you know, these are really important stories to tell. And I guess that was certainly my forte. I hope it is still to an extent, even though it's so much harder and, and totally different today. But, you know, getting people to sit down with me and to trust me, uh, you know, Barrett Robbins, I mean, you know, first interview with him as to what happened when you went AWOL from the Super Bowl with the Raiders. Uh, there are so many different, uh, really, truly important stories that had to be told. And uh, at, at Real Sports, what I'm really proud of, I mean, I've done so many profiles and, and I love doing profiles, but, you know, whether it's uh, looking at the abuse of the, of the drug toward all, marijuana use in the NFL, I mean, probably the most, the single most significant story that I've done at Real Sports, which, which was a, a long-term investigation into sexual assault in Bikram Yoga. Mm-hmm. That um, you know, working with with my absolutely phenomenal producers on. Uh, I mean, we had a we we made a lot of headlines with that story. Got a ton of, of quote unquote publicity. But the single most important thing was when sexual assault and domestic violence advocacy groups reached out to HBO to say, we're putting this story on our watch list because we want all of our members. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To be able to watch it, spread the word. When you think that you might be making an impact in people's lives, to me, that is by far, by far the most meaningful thing that you can do as a journalist. And I don't look at it as, as anything other than doing our job, but but it's it's really it's really really important to, to tell those kinds of stories. Oh, oh, definitely. I'm not knocking you for covering them at all. I don't want it to come across that way. I was just curious. Well, I should hope not. No. I wouldn't be wise. And <laughs> no, I would not be. I would, I was just curious because I mean, it, I would imagine it can take some sort of an emotional toll to have to you know cover a topic like that in depth as you as well, you have. It, it does because you're a human being. You know what I mean? And, and and of course these things are, are going to be are going to be meaningful and difficult, but. You know, the reality is that you have to try to be an objective journalist. Definitely. So, you know, that's 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 just important. So it could be, 
you know, whatever it is, you, you could feel for someone if they've got to have lost a child or, or, you know, undergone some, some sort of tragic experience, but you can also feel for someone if, uh, you know, when, when we did the story on Tordal abuse, I mean, if that, everybody knows what Tordal is now. Back then, I remember when we first started to do the story, we couldn't even find any research on it. <laughs> Nobody had written about it. Nobody had talked about it. And, you know, we, you know, we ended up having a, a player who talked about how, uh, you know, he was having kidney, you know, serious kidney disease that could be attributed to using this. So these are, these are important things that, that, that other players uh, whether they're current or they're retired, needed to hear about. So, you know, there is a little bit, I'm not trying to sound altruistic here, but there is a, a degree of a, of a public service nature. But, you know, when you, when you talk specifically about real sports and you look at some of the incredible work that a Bernie Goldberg has done or Bryant or, you know, John Frankel, uh, you know, these are, these are social, David Scott, these are socially significant stories that have, have truly had an impact, uh, you know, well beyond the idea of, of, of profiling a football player or a basketball player. Definitely, you know, no argument from me there. So I, I said we would kind of talk about your departure from ESPN in depth. So you leave ESPN in 2006. And looking back at your time there, I'll ask you two questions first. The first one being, what is your favorite positive story, like a funny story that you had to cover during your time there? At ESPN? Yes. Um, Man, you know, you're talking about 17 years of telling stories. You can need um, more than one. That's okay. Uh, I remember uh, Comiskey Park had, I mean, today they do these throwback days. All, all teams do throwback days a lot, but back then it was called Turn Back the Clock Day. And the, the White Sox and... I, I don't remember the team they were playing that day. They were wearing throwback uniforms and this and this. So ESPN assigns me to this. I'm um, based in Chicago. And I'm not exactly fired up about it. It feels a little, you know, soft and fluffy and all that to me. But I say to them, I said, all right, here's the deal. I'll do it, but you got to let me dress in period. you got to let me dress in, in the times, whatever, you know, whatever it was, early 1900s. We found a... a, a um, found a, a customer, and I was dressed as though, uh, you know, it was that time, and I remember doing a stand-up and referring to it, but all I remember is that the way the stand-up ended, which was something along the lines of, you know, this has changed, this has changed, this has changed, and oh, by the way, back in that day, I didn't even exist. There were no <laughs> female reporters, and it was just, it was just a, a funny, uh, but true moment, but yeah, uh, you probably wouldn't catch me dressing up very often, uh, but I figured if you're going to do it, that's my, that's part of my philosophy, if you're going to do it, do it the right way and do it all out, don't just, uh, don't just show up in a, in a little golf shirt and pants and pretend like you're, you're covering something from decades earlier, so that was kind of a, a lighter, fun moment. That's good. I mean, there's not a lot of those in, in, in the business, unfortunately, with uh, all the things going on. So it's always nice to hear stories like that. Second question, uh, behind the scenes during those 17 years, who would you say you built the strongest relationship with at ESPN? A lot of characters. Somebody, over there. somebody that works at ESPN? Yeah, somebody that worked or formerly, you're pretty much, you know, that's no longer there, but worked with you during uh, your time there. It could be anyone. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't pick one person. There, there were, you know, even in my Hall of Fame speech, I, I mentioned four different people from ESPN who 
I consider to be mentors to me. And, you know, that doesn't include all the producers that I worked with and, and you know, people that I heard from around the uh, the awarding of, of, or around the announcement of the Hall of Fame award. And producers who said to me, I, I know that I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't worked with you. Those are really significant things mm-hmm. because the idea that, you're being acknowledged for your body of work is, is what you want. It's, it's the main thing. Then the idea that you may have had an impact on people because they worked with you, that's, that is so much more important. It's a, it's a totally different plateau. And, uh, but I'm, I, I couldn't, I couldn't pick one person. There, there wasn't one, one person there that I could, I could point to. That's okay. That's a totally acceptable answer. I, I, I can definitely uh, agree with you there. So in 2006, after leaving ESPN, you joined NBC and began contributing to NBC Sunday Night Football as a sideline reporter, as well as Football Night in America. You covered the 2008 and 2010 Olympics as well, and then in 2011, you left. So two-part question. First, no, no, no. I did. I did the 2012 Olympics. Oh, 2012 Olympics as well, and then you departed, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. All yep. right. After the Olympics. All yep. right. So not my fault there. Sorry about that. So covering three Olympics, covering uh, a few Super Bowls for NBC as well. Uh, I'll ask you the two-part question first. How did joining NBC come about? And second, what was the main factor behind you choosing to leave? Well, I had been at ESPN for 17 years, and I had you know, what I thought was pretty much the dream job. Um, I was able to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. I think I had certainly uh, earned the respect of all the people that I worked with. Uh, I had a great degree of flexibility. And, um, you know, I, I just have absolutely no complaints to say anything about ESPN. There was uh, the way that I was treated personally and professionally uh, was, was, was pretty great. Um, you know, there were, there were certainly some hiccups there. There were some things that I wanted that I didn't have a chance to get, which was, was definitely difficult over the years. I'm not trying to paint this fully rosy picture, but I hadn't any plans to leave until you know, Dick Ebersol calls. And Dick had said back in 2006 that he wanted the best play-by-play person, the best analyst, and the best reporter. And in his mind, that was Al Michael John Madden and Andrea Kramer. And when Dick Ebersol calls, you kind of pick up the phone. Yep. Uh, it was also the opportunity. I, I'd never done games before. Never. And there was a big part of me that felt that that was not in my wheelhouse. Uh, I, was, I was somebody who specialized in in-depth reporting and long-form journalism. And now I'm being asked to talk about ankle injuries for 25 seconds. But I'd <laughs> never done it before. Uh, the ability to work with Fred Fidelli and Drew Escott, who in my opinion are absolutely the finest production team of our era, if not ever. Uh, you're talking about working with the absolute best that has ever done it. Mm-hmm. And for me, as I said to you, I love challenges. I, I love uh, to, to you know, escape out of my comfort zone. This was it. And the big thing was also the ability to work the Olympics. I remember my uh, Robin Roberts had told me years back, you don't ever want to work the Olympics unless you're the rights holder. And here I am able to work, you know, multiple Olympics. At that time, I didn't even, when I took the job, I didn't even know that I'd be assigned to swimming, which, you know, was pretty much the, in my opinion, the single best sport to cover. So it was just an opportunity to grow and learn. And uh, I was very, you know, tremendously appreciative of my opportunities at NBC. 
Definitely, and that was um, that that that's a good team right there. I mean, you're talking about some of the names that you mentioned. That's a very very well rounded staff. So. 2012 comes around, and it's a mixed bag, if you will. So you do become the chief correspondent, if I'm not mistaken, for NFL Network that year. And you also become a contributor for NFL Magazine, if I'm not mistaken, that year as well. I'm correct on both counts there, right? Yes. All right. So you're still the chief correspondent for NFL Network. Uh, but as far as NFL Magazine, that magazine folded after just a few issues, I think four to be exact. So Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, I, 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 I guess I always forget about that. That was just like a little extra, you know, on the side to do, I always loved to write, I was a pretty good writer, just to do extra, to do extra, uh, something extra that they wanted me to do for uh, writing an occasional column for NFL Magazine. But, you know, the big thing turned out to be that when you are at ESPN, you can only work at ESPN. You right. can't work anyplace else. Mm-hmm. And the minute you leave ESPN, all of a sudden, many other doors open. So whereas I was able to join, you know, NBC, I was also able to join Real Sports in 2006. And I started working, uh, I started uh, doing shorts for them in 2007 after my first, uh, my first season of Sunday Night Football. And that, to me, was just life-changing and career-changing because that's, uh, you know, a lot of people call Real Sports the... Uh, 60 Minutes of Sports, we say 60 Minutes is the real sports of news. I, I think it's the, the finest journalism program out there. Uh, I am incredibly proud to be a correspondent for them. I absolutely love working for the show, working with all the producers. Again, I feel like I'm learning something every time I go out on a shoot. And uh, and that to me is, is probably what gives me by far the most professional satisfaction is working for real sports. And you've been, as you said, a correspondent there for quite some time now. And again, another very well-rounded staff that uh, includes the great Brian Gumble. So describe your relationship with him. Well, I mean, Bryant is, you know, I, I again, if, if, you, if you look at the people that I've gotten to work with, Brian Gumble, mm-hmm. uh, Constance, Al Michaels, John Madden, Chris Collinsworth, Chris Berman, Stuart Scott. You know, you're talking about people like this. You, you know, we're, we're on Mount Rushmore here. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Uh, I think that Bryant is an, an absolutely superb interviewer and storyteller. Uh, I feel like every time I watch one of Brian's stories, I really learn something. I will literally rewind the tape and watch his interactions, watch how he phrases questions, things of that nature, the way that I would if I was watching film. And I want to go back and look at that third down play. I just, I, I think he's just masterful. And, um, uh, you know, we'll go out and do these great stories and these intense stories. And sometimes you, you put yourself in peril. And by far, the most stressful thing is sitting and doing the crosstalk with Brian. You have no idea what he's going to ask you. <laughs> no clue. You know, absolutely no idea. Because he watches it as a quote-unquote audience member, and then he tries to ask you questions that he thinks the audience would want to hear. And we had never have any idea what it is. So it's 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 amusingly stressful, but uh, but it is it is it is great. I am, and I am by no means comparing myself to Mr. Gumble, but I kind of feel the same stress whenever I'm talking to someone. Uh, on this podcast and trying to formulate the right questions, which I hope I've done so far. 
I hope you're enjoying your time on this podcast. So, yes, of course. Uh, uh, I, one question I'll ask you. I, have, I only have a few more because I know you're a very busy woman and I don't want to keep you too long. Um, you mentioned some of the interviews that you did earlier, specifically the one that you did with Phil Jackson um, that stood out. But you've interviewed some other people as well. Kobe Bryant, Bill Parcells, the Harbaugh brothers, John and Jim. Uh, besides the Jackson one that you mentioned, what do you feel uh, was the best interview that you've done so far as a correspondent for Real Sports? Who was the most candid with you? The most candid? Um, on, on Real Sports. It, it, truthfully, it's so, it's really hard to, ask, to, to answer these sort of superlative questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like if you had multiple children, it's sort of like asking which of, which of them <laughs> do you like the best. Yeah. Um, I think that each interview has its own unique nature and there could be backstories to the interview or how you got it or, or things that, that happened when you were on the shoot. I think it's 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 just it's just very, very different. Um, and I, I, I just couldn't I couldn't pick one. I really couldn't. And then and then if I did pick one, I'm sure that I would slight something else that, that had happened or whatever. So I, I, I hate to not answer your question but it's just I just find it too difficult. There's just too many stories and too many backstories to the stories to try to pick one. That's okay. I mean, again, if you wanted to name more than one, you're more than welcome to. I mean, you don't have to necessarily name just one. Uh, so that that's okay. So another question that I wanted to ask you is you were instrumental in helping launch We Need to Talk, which is an all-female sports program on CBS Sports Network, yep. the first of its kind. In your yep. opinion, yesterday, yep. what has the show accomplished so far, and what can it continue to accomplish going forward? Telling the story to being the story, but I got it. Then we went about our show, and we had Michael Strahan as a guest, and 
Brittany Lipscomb, Nate Belfer, and, and uh, Nancy Lieberman, the, the basketball coach. We get to the end of the show, and uh, and I I didn't know what the end was. I just they were like, oh yeah, we gotta we gotta wrap up quickly because we're out of time. So they come on and they said, well, you know, a couple people wanted to send their congratulations. They had a little video where they put together comments from all the women that are on the show. And it was very touching and it was just absolutely lovely. And then they said, but we're not done yet. <laughs> they come back and there's a video. Al Michaels, Bruce Arians, Ron Rivera, Tom Coughlin, Bill O'Brien, Bill Jackson, wow. Rowdy Gaines, and Dan Hicks, all wow. commenting, congratulating me, and, and making a comment about working with me. Or uh, I was, it takes a lot to render me speechless. I was speechless, I was touched, I was humbled, I was awestricken, you name it. It is literally, my, it's like living, it sounds macabre, but it's like living through your own funeral, but you get to enjoy it, because it sure makes the alternative. <laughs> But it was, it was absolutely amazing. It was truly, truly amazing. And uh, I am, being grateful is, is a timid way of, of trying to appreciate, to, to, uh, to express the appreciation that I have for all the hard work that they did on We Need to Talk to, to pull this all together, as well as all the people that took a few minutes to, to comment about me and, and to wish me well. That was, um, that was as much an honor as any other that I've received. And, and let's talk about that honor. I mean, that is an award that I was, as I was uh, reading the biography that uh, one of the PR heads at HBO was nice enough to send me. Uh, it says that that Pete Rosell Award recognizes quote longtime exceptional contributions to radio and television and professional football. So you've received a lot of honors throughout your career. And again, I hope this is not another superlative, superlative question if I'm saying that word right. But you know, again, you can give more than one answer. If you had to make a list. Where does this rank amongst your career accomplishments? Getting an award like that. Well, you know, the, the, these things are hard for me to discuss. But as other people keep reminding me, um, when you're introduced, you're you're now introduced to Hall of Fame broadcaster. Mm-hmm. It's just that simple. So, from a professional standpoint, I don't think anything gets any better than that. That's that's you're no different than the players in that you play for a team play for a team, my case several teams right now, but the Hall of Fame is the highest individual accolade or honor that you can get, and it's the same thing here. So uh, this is by far uh, the, the greatest individual honor that I've, that I've ever received, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's absolutely incredible, and um, I, I still remain absolutely humbled and, and kind of blown away by, by the whole thing. As I imagine you would be, I think anybody would be, and I mean, definitely you do deserve it, and there's no denying that. So it's time for a segment that will wrap up this podcast uh, called Rapid Fire. Five hit-and-run questions from me. Are you ready, Andrea Kramer? I'm ready, Mike. All right. So first, you've covered so many events uh, from Super Bowls to NBA All-Star Games to the PGA Championship. What is the greatest event out of all those that you've ever seen live, that you've ever covered? 2008 Olympics in Beijing when Michael Phelps won eight gold medals, a single accomplishment that I don't think we'll ever see one athlete do in in an Olympics. Fair enough. Second, if you could interview anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? 
Well, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't think about that one offhand. Um, if you say pass, if you want. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, my mind is going through the history books here. Um, yeah, there's too many paths. Keep going. All right. Third, you mentioned, you know, you were into dancing earlier, but besides that, if you didn't end up becoming a reporter, and besides what you mentioned earlier, what other career could you have seen yourself pursuing? If I had had any semblance of medical acumen or science or math, I would have loved to have been a physical therapist. All right. Fourth, favorite athlete ever. You mentioned Michael Jordan. You mentioned Michael Phelps. Who else sticks out to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always said that I've had the pleasure, the privilege, and the work of covering the two greatest Michaels in all of sports, Michael Jordan and, uh, and, and Michael Phelps. And look, you know, we're not friends with, with any of these people. Um, you can be friendly. There's always a professional relationship. But there are certainly a few relationships that I have cultivated uh, over my career that are extremely meaningful to me. And, um, uh, you know, one of them is with, is with Tom Coughlin. I'm not sure that I mentioned he was somebody who spoke in the video as well. Yes, you and, did. Um, you know, I've gotten to know him and his family, and, and they're very important to me uh, personally. But, um, yeah, it, it's, again, it's, it's hard to, to, to pick that out. That's okay. And the last question I'll ask you, and then we'll plug our uh, social media handles and get out of here. It's been a great podcast. I'm 18 years old, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, and I'm trying to establish myself as a sports media reporter. I'm, you know, I'm doing this podcast. I'm doing some writing. What advice would you give a young reporter like myself, Andrea? Don't take no for an answer. Because if people say yes, then they have to go and do something else. And I think a lot of people are inherently lazy and they don't want to do that. But I, I think that you have to keep, a person has to keep pursuing what they really feel strongly about. And in this day and age especially, there are a lot of different mediums. So there's, there's great opportunities to get the reps, so to speak. But I think that, um, I think that uh, you want to pay your dues do things the right way, you know, a, a lot of these things that, that seem like platitudes, but it's one of the reasons we didn't talk about it, and we could do it again another time, but it's one of the reasons that I, that I teach uh, primarily graduate students is because I feel as though it's very important to give back to the next generation. I tell them on the first day of class, I don't profess to know everything, but I know something. I'm happy to share it with you. But I also want to share with you what it really means to be a professional. Mm -hmm. Because nobody ever tells you that. And you may hear that. Yeah, well, you've got to be a professional. What does that really mean? And if by my actions and by my experiences I can share that with people, then I feel that that is really a job well done. I feel that that is, um, that is something that's, uh, that's, that's really super important and, that I, and I, take, uh, I take very seriously. Very well said. And on that note... I'm still trying to think of who I, who I want to interview. I guess I have so many people that are on my wish list that I still can't... Uh, that I still can't... That's okay. Can't Again, like I said one. before, if you but, you uh, don't have to pick out one. You could name like five if you want. I don't care. Yeah, no, I, I, I know. I know. I mean, I, I just look back in, in history and, you know, in and around World War II and, and uh, being able to, you know, whether it's 
interviewing FDR or whoever, just, just you know, I, I think of certain uh, points in, in history. Um, you know, you, you, you've, I, we've talked about that there have been various nefarious people, you know, I mean, to interview Nixon. Mm-hmm. You know, what were you thinking, dude? But, uh, <laughs> you know, all different things. Uh, you know, if, if, if he was going to be completely forthright and, and you could uh, almost put him under a lie detector, I'd love to talk to President Obama right now. <laughs> yeah, so there's, 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 there's so many different people that, that I, I think of that I have great interest in. Um, Catherine Graham, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just a... So many, there's so many different people. Uh, I never want to lose my, uh, somebody described it with me and I, and I took it as quite the compliment, my intellectual curiosity. I think that that's, I think that, that being curious is maybe the greatest asset that someone can have because it, it really encompasses so many different aspects of somebody's life. Mm-hmm. But being curious is, is, um, it's hugely important because it, I think it ties in with learning. And I feel, I swear, I feel like I need to learn something every single day. And, um, and then that means that it's a, it's a day well lived. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Totally agree with you there. And again, very, very well said. So, Andrea, before we go, I'll plug myself in a minute, but it's not about me. Uh, where can we find you on social media? Oh, I am uh, at Andrea underscore... K-R-E-M-E-R. That is, that is where I am on Twitter. Okay, and we can, of course, find you on HBO's Real Sports Now. We can find you on We Need to Talk, which is on CBS Sports Network as well. You can find me on Twitter, for all of you out there, including Miss Kramer, at Mike in New Haven for all my uh, tweets about the Yankees and everything else relating to sports media, uh, as we are now in a position in which the Yankees are pushing for that wild card. So we have big things coming up on this podcast. I'm working on Keith Olbermann. I'm trying to get him on the podcast, like I mentioned. You could find the podcast on iTunes, Spreaker, and the podcast app on your Apple devices. Big project coming up in a month. We're going to commemorate 9-11 with the former FDNY commissioner on that day, Tom Von Essen, and former NYPD commissioner Bernie Carrick. Uh, that'll come out on the anniversary of the attack. I'm working on that as well. So a lot of big things. Subscribe to the podcast. Give it a five-star rate and review. And again, follow me on Twitter at Mike in New Haven. On behalf of the great Andrea Kramer, I'm Mike Colon, and we will see you next time.
Walking shoes worn thin. 